This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On October 25th, the Washington Post hosted political leaders and analysts for a special 2018 midterm election preview event. Led by the Washington Post reporting team of Dan Balls, Paul Kane, and Karen Tumulty, the discussions reveal what's at stake for the candidates and the country on Election Day and the consequences for 2020 and beyond. In this segment, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich discusses how the results on November 6th will affect the Trump administration's agenda for the remainder of the president's first term and the potential implications of a change in U.S. House control. Let's listen. Good afternoon. Welcome, and we are so happy to have all of you joining us here this afternoon. Um, I'm Karen Tumulty, and I'm a political columnist here at The Washington Post, and we are absolutely thrilled to be joined here today by former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Um, And I thought we'd start by going back to 1994. Um, I spent some time on your very small, six-seater airplane with you traveling around the country during that campaign at the time I'd been at Time Magazine for all of three weeks. And I remember the first time it occurred to me that something like this might happen, because it had been 40 years since Republicans had controlled the House. We were at a um, huge rally in Tullahoma, Tennessee, of in the middle of you know not exactly a metropolis. And this huge crowd showed up. And it suddenly occurred to me that there was, in fact, something going on in the country. I wanted to ask you, what does it feel like when you're the person sort of trying to lead this? I mean, was there an aha moment for you where you said, you know, yeah, this is really going to happen here? Well, on September 17th, uh, we left to go on a fundraising swing. And I took uh, Dan Meyer, who was my chief of staff, and Dick Army's chief of staff, and uh, Joe Gaylord, who had designed the campaign. <clears throat> and I said, are we, we're gonna, we were going to do planning on the plane in between fundraisers. And I said, OK, are we planning for a speaker, or are we planning for a minority leader? And Gaylord said, well, you better plan for a speaker, because you're going to be. And at that, this hadn't happened in 40 years. And at that point, Dan Meyer said, well, hold it. Walk us through that. And then Gaylord, for about two hours, started in Maine and walked through every district in the country by memory. He was off by one seat. Wow. I never let him forget it. That it wasn't. <laughs> but from that point on, we operated for the last six weeks on the premise. Now, we, we didn't want to slow down. We didn't want to take it for granted. We didn't want to sort of jinx it, because literally it had not happened since 1952. And so there was a certain you know, pinching yourself and being cautious. Well, you know, we thought. It it felt at the time like that was a really sort of tough, divisive political environment. But I think we we look back on what we have today, and it really seems like the good old days almost. Uh, You you made a comment earlier today um, when 
you were asked about the president's description of the news media as the enemy of the people. Um, and, it, you know, this is a very sensitive, certainly, uh, topic here at the Washington Post at this particular moment while we are, we are mourning one of our colleagues who was slain apparently at the hands of the Saudi Arabian government because he criticized them. Um, what you had to say is that you thought the news media of this country has earned it, has earned the label enemy of the people. Yeah, let me, let me go back and point out, before I said that, I said anyone who sends bombs is engaged in attempted murder and should be tried for attempted murder and should be thrown, given the full weight of the law because we cannot tolerate violence. So I think there's a difference between saying, what's my analytical view? And what would I do? I have the same thing with Khashoggi. I've said publicly, the Saudi Arabian position is, is absurdly stupid. They're not going to be able to sustain it, and they're going to have to ultimately... My guess is they'll ultimately punish 12 to 15 people. But do you really think the news media... I think, I believe, in a way you, that you may be uncomfortable with, I believe when you have analyses that say 92% of the coverage is anti-Trump, there's something really profoundly wrong. I think when you have people uh, on some networks who describe Trump over and over again as a racist, uh, as being like Hitler, uh, there's something profoundly wrong. We had one columnist who's supposedly a conservative who said he'd rather vote for Joseph Stalin than Donald Trump. Stalin killed 30 million people. So when well, you, you're talking those... about one col columnist. I mean, the president describes the news media collectively right. as the enemy of the people. Well, 92%. Is that, is that, that, that's the estimate of the negative coverage that the news media gives Donald J. Trump. That's, that's not my number. That's, that's an analysis. Then you could argue that they are the critics of the president, not the enemy of the people, wouldn't you think? You could argue that. And if you want to, you're, it's a free country. If you would like to argue that, be my guest. Well, we're, we're just trying to keep it a free country. Um... By the way, we're very old friends, so I think I can say this. There's an arrogance to that statement that people here ought to think about. Every person I know in this administration is dedicated to this country remaining free. And to suggest that the news media has a special virtue over the rest of us, I think, is a profound misunderstanding. Remember, Jefferson and Hamilton each paid newspapers to smear the other. We have a very old tradition of political media in the United States although we haven't had a vice president shoot a secretary of the treasury in 200 years. <laughs> well, could you talk... A, the other thing that was different about 94 and now, I think it's the contract of America, which was really... It was, you know, it, it really gave some architecture to your campaign to take back the House. Um, we were sort of told that this campaign was going to be about the economy, that it was going to be about tax cuts, that it, it was, but in fact, it has been a pretty issue-free campaign. I just got off an airplane from Miami, uh, where last night I was at the governor's debate. It was just two guys attacking each other for an hour. Uh, it does seem like, especially as we come to the end of this campaign, it's become all about, you know, you treated Kavanaugh horribly and we'll keep a check on Trump. Is this a healthy way to conduct a campaign? Do you feel that it... It's, I mean, it's not the way I would conduct a campaign because 
I think if we had run a negative campaign in 94, we'd have gained 30 or 35 seats, but we'd never have gotten a majority. I think you have to have some positive system around which you can get people's attention that gives them a sense of hope for the future if you're going to build the kind of momentum you need uh, to actually become a majority. So, so what do you think has been the problem in, that has prevented this campaign? I mean, it, as much as we hear you know, that this is going to be the week, that this party is going to talk about that issue, or this party is going to talk about this issue, it, every sim single week seems to devolve into this kind of fighting. I think that we live in the age of the Kardashians, and that you get up every morning and something happens. And then you get up the next morning and something happens. And it's just unbelievable. Um, I think you can, when you see Trump on occasion like arguing for a middle class tax cut, and you see pieces that are rolled out here and there. You saw the Democrats made a real run for a while at, at sort of a Medicare for everyone. And that, that looked like it was almost going to take off until people started looking at it. And they've since backed off because it's not very defensible. But I think um, that you, you it's, it's really, I don't want to sound self-serving, but it is really hard to come up with five or 10 big ideas and hammer them out and get 200 and some people uh, to, in our case, we got something like 400 people who were candidates to sign on to them. And most of the time, people just get too tired in, in both parties. It's just easier to, to be in the Kardashian tradition of you know, go out and get in a fist fight. So you just don't think there's any way back? Oh, sure. I mean, eventually, I mean, first of all, while people didn't particularly want to admit it, Trump actually ran a pretty issue-oriented campaign in 16. It was just issues that the establishment didn't like. But Trump was pretty clear about his view of the war. He's pretty clear about his view of trade policy. He's pretty clear about his desire to get economic growth. He's pretty clear about the kind of judges he would appoint. Uh, and on almost all the things he actually campaigned on, his administration has implemented what he said. Uh, so in that sense, I think Trump, much, much more than Hillary, uh, actually was giving people a sense of, of what you want to go. I, I was in the room when they first discussed getting 10 names for the Supreme Court as a way of getting people to understand how serious he was. And the people who were doing that were really first-class national people who understood exactly what to do. And I think in that sense, you'd find the, the challenge with Trump is this is a good issue, this is a good issue, this is a good issue, and here's the noise. And the noise very often drowns the good issue. So you can't quite remember what the good issue was in between the noise. Have you talked to him about that? Sure. And what does he say? He loves what he does. Okay. I mean, I mean, I mean to be honest for a second, to be fair to him, you show up someplace with 25, 30, 35,000 people. They're all jumping up and down screaming. You walk out on the stage, they jump up and down and scream more. You feel pretty good about yourself. I mean, you don't feel like, gee, I think I'll go back and get coached. And you sure don't say, I think I'll call Newt and ask Newt to coach me because, you know, I remember when he used to get 35,000 people. I never got 35,000 people. I'd have been president if I'd gotten 35,000. You know, so I think Trump, in a sense, is, somebody said one time, it's very hard to get somebody in their 70s to learn a new golf swing. And I think that Trump has, in his mind, a really successful system that has worked very well for him. Well, another thing I would like to, and we're not, predicting. We're not, I've decided we, we really shouldn't be in the prediction business today, but assuming if, but, if the Democrats do take the House back, 
but they're going to be coming in uh, having only run the place in four of the last 24 years. Right. Only three people in line, ranking members in line to become committee chairmen and women have ever been a committee chairman or woman. Um, that's not entirely unlike the situation that you guys found yourself in. As I recall, the early days in December of 94, you guys weren't even sure what rooms you controlled. Sure. What's the learning curve like? And, and if you were to be giving some advice to them on sort of how to do this when you have so little institutional memory, what would it be? Well, I, I would say, um, first of all, the only person we had who had served in a Republican majority was Bill Emerson of Missouri, who was a page. Oh, wow. Uh, we had several Democrats who served in Democratic majority. We had nobody who'd ever been. And the, and the reason we didn't know where the rooms were is that the Democrats for 40 years wouldn't tell us. So we got the architect, you know, we, we, Jim Nussel was assigned to get the architect of the Capitol and walk through every single room that the House controlled. And he came back to some of the leadership meetings and says, going, look what I found. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable how much stuff they had, uh, most of which they didn't have anymore. <clears throat> the, uh, I, I would say this about where they're at. And, and we did, remember, remember that we had set up the first 100 days that was really exhausting. And, and we voted on every aspect of the contract in the first 100 days. Um, and that was designed really to set up a rhythm and a pattern and a sense of seriousness. I would say, excuse me, I would say to the Democrats that they face a really important challenge right after the election. They can decide they want to base 2020 as the party of better ideas, or they can base 2020 as the party of investigations, but that the system won't carry both, and that they've got to make a fundamental decision about which party they think gives them a better chance of winning in 2020. If, if they end up in a majority, which I think is still not in any way certain. Well, you bring up the function that in many ways is, is likely to be, I mean, if you take the scenario that people, pundits tend to talk about as being the most likely, which would be the Democrats getting back the House, the Republicans hanging on to the Senate, they would be pretty limited in which of their ideas they could actually enact into law. But where they would not be limited would be on the oversight and the investigation. They would be getting subpoena power back. And they would be getting it back in a much more expanded version than they have ever known it, in part because the Republicans themselves expanded the number of committee chairmen who can issue these subpoenas unilaterally without consulting the ranking member or taking a vote in the committee or whatever. How do you think? they should and how would they use that? Well, I, I don't know what they'll do, but I would suggest that they read uh, The Art of the Comeback, which is Trump's second book after The Art of the Deal, and describes how he came back from almost going broke in the early 1990s. And if I were them, I'd remember, this is a billionaire who has fought lawsuits his entire career, and he's never noticed them. He doesn't care. That's why he has lawyers. So they can come at him from 100 levels. He'll just hire 100 lawyers and say, you know, call me when it's over. I've got to go do other things. I'll see I'm going to you know, China or I'm going to campaign. 
but I don't think he has any fear of the Democrats' ability to investigate. But he's been raising that fear out sure, there on the campaign. just because he wants everyone to go vote. And what about if they subpoena his tax returns? Then they'll be trapped into appealing to the Supreme Court, and we'll see whether or not the Kavanaugh fight was worth it. <laughs> so, um... The other thing they would face is the decision of who would be speaker. Um, a number of their own members, a number of their own candidates, dozens of them have already said that Nancy Pelosi, that they would not necessarily support her. At the same time, I mean, she was pretty effective as Speaker of the House uh, when she served there before. Could you talk a little bit about, I mean, these these kind of internecine warfares that, that, I mean, you, you had a few, uh, at least one coup attempt that I recall. Yep, and, and I've written novels, and it's always fun. Um, I would say, first of all, Nancy Pelosi is a very smart, very tough person who has earned her position by just brute hard work, uh, by applying her intelligence, and by building a network that has sustained her for a long time. I would also say that uh, anybody who thinks they're going to outmaneuver her is up against somebody who has spent literally her lifetime, starting with her father, who was the mayor of Baltimore. I mean, she has been in this business forever, uh, and the odds, and she has all the internal mechanisms, uh, and the other person or people won't. Um, so I think, in that sense, could it blow up? Sure. Uh, it, you know, what, what ultimately got to me was a large enough number of members who said they would not vote for me even if my conference picked me, so I couldn't get to 218 on the floor. And if she got a narrow majority and she had enough people say that, then she'd have a really big problem. But if all they do is say, I'm going to vote against her in the caucus, but if the caucus picks her, I'm going to be for her, then she'll be speaker. So do you think that that's what's going to be the case? I, well, I, look, I think, I think the odds are one, two out of three she'll be speaker in one out of three that Kevin McCarthy will be. And I think that if she becomes speaker, she will have raised the money, she will have waged the campaign, she will have crisscrossed the country. I mean, who's going to get up and say she doesn't have any right to be speaker? So my guess would be if they win that she'll be speaker. Well, could you also talk a little bit, and we're coming down to our last couple of minutes here. Um, midterm elections really are about the president, especially this, this first one, and how people feel about the president. President Trump, his, his poll numbers are up a little bit, but he has been, for almost his entirely, entire presidency, historically unpopular in the polls, despite the fact that the economy is, is sure. doing quite well. Could you talk about this paradox and ultimately sort of how this election plays out as a referendum on the well, president. I mean, look, you won't like this answer, but it's part of the reason that my side is so angry at the media. I mean, if you look day after day after day for two solid years, what do you think people are going to think? You know, and so I think that that's part of it. Uh, on the other hand, he's now at about 45%. And we, we've never seen an election that is this polarized. I mean, this is a president really his base is totally his. So he's probably at 45% going in every morning. And they've got to go out and find 5 or 6%. Uh, and 
uh, we'll see if they can pull it off. But but I I would just point out that I, I lived through all all through 2016 when everybody here knew that Jeb Bush was going to be the nominee and Hillary Clinton was going to be the president, and almost nobody in the establishment has learned that you know Jeb Bush didn't get to be the nominee and Hillary didn't get to be the president because this guy is really very smart. I mean, you may not like his style, but he is very smart. And he is working very hard right this minute to see if he can't win the House. And again, if he doesn't, um, what kind of Donald Trump would we see after that? Would he be essentially doubling down on opposing the Democrats, or would this be the art of the deal, Donald Trump? Uh... Oh, I think he would do both. I think on, well, first of all, I think, I, I literally think they're more likely to be at 57 in the Senate than Schumer is to be leader. So I think if you look at the Senate, he's going to get all of his judges. He's going to get all of his appointments. He's going to continue to reshape the government. Second, uh, the one thing which I failed at totally in 2017, they ought to move infrastructure. There is no better bipartisan legislation than infrastructure. And you can have meetings and get people in the same room and all of a sudden have all sorts of people who want to work with you. And so there are a couple of things like that they can do. And then they ought to pick very carefully the fights they need for their own purposes. But I think uh, they'll continue deregulation. They will continue to be aggressive on trade policy. They'll continue to be aggressive in foreign policy. They'll continue to get more and more judges. Uh, and I think they'll find, if the Democrats do win, remember also, there's a fair chance if the Democrats win control of the House, it's going to be really narrow. And they may not be in a very good shape to, to, to run things in the House very far. Because we may be able, you know, the president has lots of capability, and he might be able to pick off six people. And six people may be the majority. So, you know, I think, uh, I, I think it will be a fascinating two years no matter what. Well, I really appreciate you joining us here today. And um, it's always again, fun. It's always, it's always you go back a long way. It is true. It is true. So can I tell them you're writing a Nancy Reagan book? I am right. Okay. Here's writing a Nancy Reagan book. Yes. Bipartisanship up here, okay. Okay. <laughs> Probably anyway, ruined you at the post. That's okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Thank you. That was fun. I'll follow you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Dot com.